0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Faith Ringgold at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Chicago. My first guest is curator Jamila James, who has organized Faith Ringgold, American People, a retrospective of Ringgold's career as an artist and activist at the MCA. The exhibition presents Ringgold as a key bridge between the Harlem Renaissance and contemporary practice. It originated at the New Museum, New York, where it was curated by Massimiliano Gioni and Gary Carrion muriari Ringgold is in Chicago through February 25th. Side note, I saw it there. James's installation makes the relationship between Ringgold's art and activism crystal clear. It's one of the strongest things in the show and makes it one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. The Outstanding Catalog was published by the New Museum and Faden. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for between $55 and $75. On the second segment, new access to the pioneering photographs made by George Massa in the Southern Appalachians. But first, Jamila James, after the break. It's the Getty Villa Museum's 50th anniversary, and you're invited to celebrate with the year of captivating exhibitions. Now on view, check out Sculpted Portraits from Ancient Egypt, presenting vivid sculptures of officials of the court and priesthood. On April 10th, Discover the mighty deities, brave heroes, and fantastic beings that adorn the terracotta vessels of the ancient Greeks, the Maya in Central America, and the Moche of northern Peru in Picture worlds, Greek, Maya, and Moche pottery. Then on November 6th, explore the ancient land of Thrace, comprising present-day Bulgaria and parts of Romania, home to a tribal culture that produced superb gold, silver, and bronze works used in aristocratic pursuits, such as warfare, horsemanship, and banqueting. From ancient artifacts to lush Roman-style gardens, there's always something beautiful to discover at the Getty Villa Museum. Plan your visit and book free reservations today at getty.edu. Artist. Author. Activist. Educator. Witness the groundbreaking practice of Faith Ringgold in Faith Ringgold, American People, opening at the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, November 18th. This comprehensive retrospective features over five decades of the artist's works, which detail the complexity of life in the United States and radical social change from the civil rights movement to today. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. And we're back. Jamila James, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. A pleasure and an honor.
0: The exhibition, at least as it's installed in Chicago, opens with two galleries of Faith Ringgold's mid to late 60s early works and American People series. The paintings are portraits or at least representations of people, but they are only rarely specific people. For example, there's a self-portrait. So how does Ringgold use portraiture in these series? And why does she choose not to use, you know, actual people?
1: (laughs) I think the way that Ringgold approaches the figure is that for a while before she started to make the early works and American people, she was working in abstraction. And then at a certain point, there was a sense, particularly among Black artists of the 1960s, that maybe abstraction was not the best direction to go on the heels of the civil rights movement and wanting to put forth positive representations of Black people, but also to represent the realities of Black life in America at that time. So that would be one of the motivations that Faith had to segue into making literature. In terms of not using specific people beyond herself or beyond her daughters, it was to make the representation more general, so that you can imagine any person being in that situation without it being a specific narrative or a specific story. When she moves on in her career and she's using her own body more and more, the work takes a more personal dimension, but it's still quite relatable to, you know, an entirety of people that were experiencing Some of the feelings that she was experiencing at the time, particularly alienation, not feeling that she fit in one place or another, trying to navigate the complexities of being a Black person and a woman in the 1960s and early 70s in New York City, in the art world and in, you know, society at large. So using portraiture, either of herself or of other people more generally, was her way to kind of have a more general, broad discussion of some of these ideas. Because they're relatable.
0: I think one of the things we see happening in the first gallery or two is the backgrounds, the the whatever is behind the figure or figures in the paintings becoming important, becoming a part of the story, not really a narrative, but part of the story that Ringgold wants to tell. And then eventually, maybe by the end-ish of the series, the figure and the background become integrated with each other such as in God Bless America from 1964. Mm -hmm. What do you see happening with her backgrounds and how she extends, maybe ideology is a better word than story, across the entire rectangle?
1: I would say with the early works, I'm trying to pull up a good image of something. Yeah, I mean, I think with the early works, having the figures in the foreground, I think is really what the important part is. I don't think really the backgrounds are necessarily that important. I mean, I'm looking at things like Black and Blue Man or Uptight Negro, where it's just monochromatic in the background so that you can really focus on the color, the relief, you know, her using very dark shading, almost like your Scuro, or what she called super realism to really emphasize the figure and really emphasize the situation that she was pointing to. I think those are really the compelling and most important parts. Definitely with a work like Woman in a Red Dress, which is new for the MCA, that that's an example where the background is a little bit integral to it because it's setting her body or the body of the figure in the foreground is really taking up a lot more of the canvas and expanding in a way that the earlier works don't necessarily do, like self-portrait. You know, she's central in that work. A Man Kissing a Wife, I think his wife would maybe be another example where the figures are really expanding to the edges of the, of the painting. Whereas American people, I mean, there's a couple of examples in the show, like Between Friends, which is the first One, in the American People series, where the figures are standing in very close proximity with each other, and there is something physical that's separating the two of them, and that is allegorical in terms of the separations that I think Faith was alluding to as a Black woman, trying to have friendships with white women, um, supposedly liberal white women, and then still experiencing a degree of alienation and feeling as if she was perhaps trespassing in places that did not want her or did not think that she belonged.
0: Yes. In Between Friends, there is a a kind of a cruciform between the two figures. One that recalls, um, I forget who said it, that the most divided place in America is, is, the most divided time in America is Sunday morning, right? The two American people pictures where the background really becomes important to kind of the ideas or ideology that Ringgold is Advancing our portrait of an American youth, where we have a white person of indeterminate but youngish age (laughs) against a red, white, and blue background with a vaguely menacing, shadowy profile of himself behind him. And God Bless America, where a woman is overtaken by an American and almost imprisoned by an American flag. And it seems like those might be two pictures. In which Ringgold begins to migrate ideas, understandings, forms from graphic design into paintings.
1: I would say that I read Portrait of American Youth differently, in that I think that that figure is a young black boy with the white, shadowy figure lurking in the background, potentially suggesting some of what that youth will encounter once they grow up, once they start participating in the social world and in the social order. But it's a bit ambiguous, as you said. You read it as a young white boy, and I read it as a young Black boy with a white figure in the background. God bless America with the woman being consumed by the American flag. Some of the bars are over her head. Some of them are behind her head. I think the, the reading of it as an imprisonment. I think it's a fair one. This is a work that is not that much before one of her important works which is American People number 19 the US postage stamp where she begins to embed certain imagery within the work and hiding certain things within the work. As you know, there are a couple of other flag works that are in the show like Black Light, Flag for the Moon where, you know, it's an extended commentary on what Americanness is and what the American flag represents a work like the U.S. postage stamp doesn't use the American flag per se, but it recalls the Confederate flag um, with the formation of the faces and the, the letters for Black power in the foreground. And then, you know, of course, embedded within the negative space between the faces are letters that read white power. So I think a work like Portrait of American Youth, God Bless America, it's on a continuum where She's beginning to think about the relationship of foreground, background, and what can be hidden within a painting to have two, to convert two messages, depending on who is encountering the work. What might be seen by one visitor might not be seen by another one.
0: That issue of multiple messages is even in Portrait of American Youth. The hands of the figure are notably darker than the facial skin tone, almost raising multiple possibilities, right? Yes. Um, you mentioned American flag forms. We're going to come back to those in a minute, like how could we not? They are everywhere in Ringgold. But before we do, I wanted to pass through the Black Light series, which Ringgold made between 67 and 69, pretty pretty key years in the 20th century of the United States. What was the Black Light series and why is it called that?
1: Blacklight began in 1967, a couple of years after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and during the rise of different liberation struggles in the United States and the Black Panther Party, the Black Power Movement among them. Using the Black Light series uses color theory in an unusual way, and that she's using black, green, blue, colors that have a symbolic register for her. Red could be Blood, it could be bleeding wounds, the blue the blue could be the American flag blue, it could be bruises, it could be the blues, the American musical form, and black of course can reference blackness, black skin, darkness, what have you.
0: The 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 first two works in the Blacklight series are of faces-ish but they're almost pictograms. And I think they point to more of this kind of graphic or commercial design that that is soon to come even more fully. Why is Ringgold beginning to embrace forms that seem to come from, from graphic design at about this time? Any idea?
1: I mean, I think part of it would be how bold and how on the face that text can be. And using bolder colors, more generalized forms, kind of directly without varnish, without any distractions, communicating an idea. I mean, granted, there are works like Flag for the Moon, where there are these different layers that are happening within the work. So you see certain things, you don't see certain things. But at a distance, you can read it very easily as an American flag. And as you get up closer to it, you're being drawn into it. And then certain things begin to reveal themselves. I think other works in the Black Light series are more direct, Black Art Poster is a work that's in our show that talks about art, music, different things that were, of course, of interest to faith. But then there's a work like Black Light Series number nine, The American Spectrum, which gets into something that might be a bit more personal, thinking about the different skin tones of American Black people, but are Black people, but also what it means socially to be of a different skin tone, be it kind of in a meta way in terms of black-white race relations, but also colorism within the black community.
0: That might be, for me, the most interesting work in the show because you mentioned a moment ago Ringgold's interest in color theory. So American Spectrum will have an image on manpodcast.com shows six cropped faces of subtly different and progressive skin tones, stunning both in terms of the art history it engages. I mean, going back to the late 18th century, skin tone had been of enormous importance to U.S. developed race theory and artists between Gilbert Stewart and Carl Ferdinand Weimar certainly noticed. But also the painting in some ways kind of sums up six or seven years of Ringgold's own production at that point, where where she'd been painting different skin tones in really specific ways, especially paintings with multiple people. Also, this painting is is completely unlike anything she'd done to this point. It is, You know, the cropping is different. Yeah. The format, to a long, short rectangle, much, much, much wider than it is tall. Do we know what brought her to, it, it almost feels like kind of an end of something. Do we know what brought her to the painting?
1: You know, not that work specifically, but I'll point to the U.S. postage stamp because I think she uses a similar strategy with the cropping, kind of making the figures more anonymous, the entire grid of that work are these faces that are very similar to the American spectrum faces. I mean, after American people, her figuration really begins to shift. You know, one of the perks of the show being hung in chronological order is that you can definitely see the transitions between her approach to the figure, her approach to materials, even though it might seem abrupt. So with the American spectrum, I don't think it's unusual. I mean, it is... It is a large, it's a smaller painting, but I think within it, it really compresses a lot of ideas within the work about identity, about the way that certain people are represented, certain people are profiled, even though with that work, there are a lot of commonalities in the face faces as she shifts the skin tone, as she shifts the eye colors, it then begins to point towards what is the crux of a lot of her work, which is examining the evolution of race relations in the United States and how socially people are having different experiences depending on how they look at basic. And I think that work in particular really encapsulates that idea in a neat way.
0: You mentioned flags earlier, and this period, kind of the late 60s, is a peak of Ringgold's interest in the flag. What are some of the other works in which she riffs on the flag and red, white, and blue? And I guess maybe why did she decide it was successful enough, either in terms of audience response or in terms of what it was allowing her to do, to go back to it again and again?
1: You know, there's another work that's in the exhibition, Black, Seri- Black Light Series Number 8, Red, White, and Black, N-Word, that also uses the American flag colors in a very direct way. I think using the, the iconography of the American flag was Ringgold's approach to talking about these very complex social issues in a very compact and direct way. The American flag confers certain things globally and within our country. And for her, she wanted to have this extended critique about all of the things, all the violences, all the um, exclusions and oppressions that Black people were experiencing in the 1960s and what America was doing, the American government was doing at the time, which was not aligned with how it wanted to present itself on the global stage. For instance, of course, again, flag for the moon. Faith is talking about, we sent someone to the moon uh, to plant the American flag. Meanwhile, there's all this turmoil and violence that's happening on American streets. And It highlights for her really the inconsistencies and messed up priorities of the American government in terms of how it treated the Black community at the time, kind of ignoring economic concerns, communitarian concerns, things that were really deeply impacting the community, such as drugs, violence, so on and so forth, that was spilling out in the American streets, but was not being effectively addressed or sensitively addressed by the U.S. government. So using the iconography of the flag, the colors of the flag, which could symbolically convey different ideas, you know, black for blackness, blue for the blues, so on and so forth. I think that was the motivation for her to continue again and again to go back to the flag because it's one of the most recognizable forms that points to American identity and troubles what is America and what it means to different people.
0: When I was walking through this show in Chicago, surrounded by all of these riffs on the flag, I thought to myself, gosh, I bet it's been 30 years since there was was last a big contemporary show surveying how American contemporary artists considered the flag and it has been 30 years, it was 1994, David Rubin's show, Old Glory. And and given the ways we've seen artists expand, I think, their address of the U.S. flag since then, um, it struck me as something there for the doing.
1: I mean, she co-organized that show, the, the People's Flag show, which I think is an early precursor to a show like what you mentioned, and that you know, artists were thinking about these ideas in the 1970s as well. But at that time, I mean, I mean, it still persists that if you do something to the American flag, it causes an uproar, even though it's you're well within your rights to do whatever with it. But in the 1970s, there was, you know, an ordinance on the books that would consider any appropriation of the American flag artistically and otherwise to be deserc- desecration of the flag. Faith included Flag for the Moon in that exhibition, which I think is definitely one of the more difficult and incendiary works that you could have in a show like that. But, you know, this was something that was a concern to artists there. I mean, there were all these parallel liberation struggles going on in the United States and across the world. You know, there was the Vietnam War, War where, you know, a lot of people were adamantly against that war, thinking that You know, the American government should be focusing on issues at home rather than entering into a war where there is really no end in sight. So it's not surprising that the American flag continues to be. Kind of ripe for the picking, you know. Especially now, we're in 2024. A lot of the issues that Faith was alluding to in her work from the 1960s and 1970s is still relevant now. History continues to cycle down the drain and repeat itself. And you know, her investigation of the, sim- the symbolism of the American flag, I think, still has legs today. And I think that's why people that are coming to the show are really responding to it because there is this timelessness with how citizens have to think about how power operates in this country, how we position ourselves globally, but, you know, aren't necessarily doing the right things, you know, behind closed doors. So her using that iconography, I think, kind of ends a certain period of her work, you know, the work that she was doing in the 70s that used fiber, you know, it's of a very different tenor, but it's still exploring some of the same ideas in parallel. A
0: lot of the same ideas, and of course, that's where I was going next. In 72, Ringgold begins making tapestries, sometimes including paintings on canvas, hung like tapestries, and sometimes with actual fabric, and ultimately, of course, quilts. Why was she attracted to that hanging textile referent or textile-inclusive form?
1: She began experimenting with textile... As a way to expand what painting could do for her in her practice and wanting to incorporate different points of material reference. So not just working with canvas, but working with these fabric, referencing other forms like the Tibetan Tongas and using fabrics from West Africa. Really, again, exploring this kind of heavily graphic sensibility, but kind of bringing all these different material choices together that might not otherwise find their way into You know, dominant artistic practice of the time. You know, there's also the point that her mother was, you know, a pattern maker. That was another way for her to collaborate with her mother on certain things. I think there's an immediacy with working with textile that I think was appealing to her and wanting to kind of merge different sensibilities together, you know, using a heavily graphic style still, which is consistent with her earlier work and works like Slave Rape, but also you know, having other things tether it to the real world. So using quilting as a practice, knowing that quilting has a narrative capacity to it. It wouldn't be, you know, it'd be another decade or so before she started, you know, using using quilts narratively. But these works really set the stage for that work and help her to represent the hybridity of material culture that was happening around her that she didn't see otherwise represented.
0: It's an extraordinary expansion of practice. All of a sudden, there is nature. There are these hanging works of trees. There is abstraction that, when we see on a wall today, feels very much like a precursor or a a, a reference point for somebody like Odili Donald Odita. It's, it's you know, it's it's not a one hundred and eighty, but it's like a one hundred and (laughs) twenty, and it's just a really exciting explosion of difference that, for some artists, can not work. But that absolutely works here.
1: Oh, sorry. No. Go ahead. I just wanted to say that Faith is incredibly dexterous with, you know, the different materials she's using, the way that she attacks the figure, the fact that she had a life in abstraction before she came to figuration and has been able to successfully do both. You know, in our presentation in Chicago, I did want to highlight, you know, her foray into abstraction, which really sets the stage for The works of the 1970s and the the early 80s work, like um, California Da and Da, we included a work from 1962 that was not in the originating presentation at the New Museum next to the Da paintings from 1983 so that the viewer could really see that there is this continuum that she's been working on, even as she has these detours into different ways of making like the fabric sculptures from the early 70s or the heavily graphic figurative works, also from, the ni- from 1972, the slave slavery works. But there's still kind of variations on a similar theme.
0: You mentioned the narrative quality of Ringgold's quilts. So what are story quilts, and why does Ringgold decide to turn in a hard narrative direction? Not, not, not just presenting ideas, but there are stories playing out across these works.
1: You know, I think it's pointing to certain traditions within Black material culture. You know, thinking about the Gee's Bend quilt makers, the ways that quilts have been used to share messages. You know, and that was done often using different colors that were pieced together, different shapes that were brought together. But with the, the story quilts, she started making story quilts in the early 1980s. Echoes of Harlem was her first pieced quilt. We unfortunately weren't able to get that work for this show. But it's not one that brings text to the forefront. It's, you know, figurative. It's very similar in a way to some of the American people works where there's a number of faces kind of composited um into a single work. And then the earliest quote that we have in the show is Mother's Soul, which is her last collaboration with her mother, who died in nineteen eighty one. The story quilt's offered a vehicle for Ringgold to to really tie together the personal, the familial, and the fantastic within the space of a single work. A work that is one of my personal favorites in the show, Change, is directly biographical. It shows her transition through her weight loss, and it uses text. It also uses photographic images, which is very unusual in her practice, and I don't think really comes up again. But Having something deeply personal, something diaristic in the space of a quilt, I think becomes consistent across her later works, even if it's not directly referencing her. Like the French collection, the French collection quilts are, you know, pulling from different sources that could be biographical, could not be. There's also the Bitterness series. There's all these different ways that she's using narrative, even though it might not necessarily be about her, but it could be, again, this kind of general experience, like you know, what you saw in the early works and then the American people works.
0: So even as Ringgold in all of these years, in the late 60s and in the 70s and now in the early 80s, is making things that hang on walls, making art objects, she is active as an activist. And there are throughout the exhibition, a wonderful series of vitrines that seems to tell the viewer there is little to no difference between art and activism, that the ideas expressed in one form are present in other forms. It's the kind of presentation I wish more art museums would do more often. What are some of the kinds of things that are in those vitrines? And how do you want visitors to receive the material in the vitrines vis-a-vis the material that is on walls?
1: We are very, very lucky to be able to have a number of Photographs and letters and other objects from that very active period of her life where she was involved with different artist groups, different activist groups in parallel with her artistic practice I don't know where she found all of the energy to, to I know I kept thinking active, that in the show <laughs> I just yeah you know, it, it's it, it boggles the mind you know between being a parent, maintaining an artistic practice, sometimes you know teaching and then also the activism as well. I don't know how she did it. I think the way that the the archival materials operates it's not separate at all and viewers shouldn't really take it as, you know, this random assortment of things that's very general. Her activism was intrinsic to her work at the time and her work was intrinsic to her activism. You know, she was involved with black liberation causes, the feminist movement, anti-colonial anti-colonialism activism, also prison abolitionist activism. So there are all these different things that she was pulling from. She made posters that benefited, you know, the Black Panther Party, the People's Flag Show, you know, her incarceration with that. And also, you know, Angela Davis, Free Angela Davis, you know, she was using her practice to further some of these activist concerns and also calling institutions into account for what, she saw as opportunities that the museums were taking at the time. Institutions like MoMA and the Whitney wanting them to be more inclusive with their programs. Obviously, this is a point of discussion still at all museums. Not much has changed. I mean, lots has changed. Lots has, a lot has changed, but a lot of things still remain the same. And the fact that in the 1970s, she was talking about this. Other artists were talking about this and putting their bodies on the line. Picketing in front of these institutions, I think is really fascinating. I think that oftentimes artists want to separate certain things about their work, dividing it from their personal life, dividing it from, you know, their teaching career, dividing it from their activism. But with faith, it all has to operate in concert with each other. And I think because she had these commitments to these various movements. I think that really enriches the work in a way because her focus was so much on community, on people that she knew, people she didn't know, but that were impacted by certain policies, certain rules, certain politics, and really just wanting to invest herself, mind and body within speaking to these issues, using her art to do that, but also using her voice and her platform to do it as well.
0: I think one of the most exciting things about the installation of the show is that art is voice and voice is art. And and the way the show is installed, the suggestion is for Ringgold, one was not prioritized above the other, but yeah. one was not the top half of the circle and one was not the bottom half of the circle. It was just a circle. And it's in every gallery of the show. and. If I were to make a connection between a lot of present day practice and the, much of which I think Ringgold has, has beget, that's much more common in today's contemporary art world than yeah. it was in 1967 or 1972 or 1984 or whatever. Well, 84 might be a bad year to pick. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I, as I walked through the show, I, I, I kept coming back to that circularity. Yeah. Another mode of making work that Ringgold holds on to for for quite a long time is the idea that a quilt can be painted on. The idea that something that is a quilt or reads as a quilt can be a carrier of, you know, good old-fashioned oil paint. Why do you think she liked that idea? Why does she hold on to it?
1: I think again for her it is kind of breaking the hierarchy of what is considered High art, so painting, which she participated in in the early parts of her career, but also to bring that to quilting or crafting, which is often you know spoken in a, spoken about in a very really derisive way. It's something that for a long time and maybe still presently is marginalized within discourses of contemporary art. and for someone like Faith who is often operating in the periphery of the dominant art world. Exploring these forms that were maybe not as visible, maybe not necessarily of interest, I think was her way to push back and reject certain conceptions of what art could be at that time, or certain ways of approaching making painting. You know, using a more vernacular form, like making quilts, and painting on them, it kind of merges these two sensibilities together. I think also like quilting has this kind of lack of pretense, really. It's something that people can really be drawn to for its graphic nature, for its textures and materials. And then pulling the person, pulling the viewer closer to the work, then you begin to see text and narrative coming to the fore, or the fact that she's actually making paintings using quilting, which, you know, is pretty radical, I would say. And I think it's maybe part of the reason why Faith's work has been difficult to categorize over the years, because, you know, there's maybe this misconception of what her work actually is, because so many people are aware of the quilts, but don't necessarily know how to place quilting... In a contemporary discourse. So I, th- I think that with this show in particular, it's really important that a, a venue like the New Museum or a venue like the MCA did this exhibition to really put, you know, our, to put, to put Ringgold's approach front row and center and to remind people that. There is no one way to make art. There's no one way to enter into these discussions, and oftentimes artists are thinking of new and exciting ways to put forward their ideas and what faith has done time and time again is reinventing herself, reinventing her approach, reevaluating what is the most effective way to communicate the concerns that she had for her own for her own sake but also for the sake of the communities that might be. Interested or impacted by the work that she was doing.
0: You mentioned quilting as being a really direct way of communicating with a viewer. I think that matches the directness of Ringgold's own painting style, whether in the late 60s or 30 years later. And in terms of this question that I think artists grappled with at the time and that institutions have grappled with since, as to where textilic works fit. I mean, among Ringgold's peers, look at Emma Amos, who who also insisted that textilic works belonged on walls next to prints and paintings, and so deal with it, comma, institutions. And they have, right? I mean, that's, you know, contemporary museums especially are good at knowing how to welcome in a range of media, maybe in a way that, ironically, encyclopedics are still starting to stick into silos. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned in passing a moment ago the French collection quilts, and I wanted to raise those before we wrap up. They are Ringgold's squaring up to Western art history and its centerings by offering a bunch of different things no no single approach here so sometimes these are recontextualizations and recenterings of french authored art historical narratives sometimes it's as straightforward as inserting a black figure into an ovidian story such as leda and the swan sometimes it's a family ignoring european standards like the mona lisa to to dance in front of it Something about that quilt makes me think the Mona Lisa was, was much in, once installed much differently than it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. It's worth a look and a laugh. And sometimes it's an integrated group having a luncheon on the grass or dinner at Gertrude Stein's, which if you're an art history nerd, there are like 23 little knowing winks and nods and and head tosses and jokes that that are a blast. Wow. I think I'm saying all of this to say that across the French collection quilts, Ringgold is not correcting art or art history. She's using it as as clay to play with, throwing stuff up against a wall and and seeing how much fun she can have with it. At least that's, I mean, pointed fun, but fun. That's my take. How do you think of what she's doing in these works? And is she having as much fun as I think she was?
1: I think she was having plenty (laughs) of fun with these works. I really love this series. And I love that she's using this series, again, to have this engagement with narrative, you know, using what could be biographical somewhere in there. But as part of a tale about a young Black woman and mother who wants to be an artist and then goes to Paris from Harlem um, to explore those ideas and kind of imagining herself, in these various situations that she might not ordinarily be welcome to or participating in. I think it's a way for Faith to really insert Black women into the spaces of European cultural production and history. I think it's a way for her to point to Black people and Black visual culture always being in conversation with more Euro-centered Artistic practices, thinking of the ways that, you know, black sculpture was appropriated by Picasso, so on and so forth. I think it's a way also for her to do a little bit of re- revisionist history, imagining people like Romare Bearden or Elizabeth Catlett or Archibald Motley, you know, having lunch at the Cafe d'Artise with Vincent van Gogh or Toulouse Lautrec or, you know, Gauguin. I think. It's a way for her to talk about all of these histories in a way that's visually appealing and isn't so much insider baseball to people that maybe might be coming to this work and not being familiar with any of these figures or any of what any of the spaces or the ideas that she's citing. You know, the sunflower quilting bee at ARL has a number of historical figures in it that might be more recognizable than, say, Raymond Saunders or always Miley Jones or in the Kathy D.R.T.'s. So it's, you know, an opportunity for her to kind of bring everything on a similar level on the same trajectory. That history isn't really separate from artistic practice. The different cultures that are working in parallel with each other should really be working in a, in one linear way on one continuum with each other. And I think it's also just a way for her to still be critical, but have a little bit of fun and be a bit more fanciful.
0: I mean, I think the other thing she's doing is pointing out that a number of these artists, particularly Matisse and Picasso, take, take the dinner at Gertrude Stein's, are being informed by Black, specifically African, ideas and forms and people. But there weren't necessarily, at those dinners at Gertrude Stein's, Black people themselves. Exactly. So she's migrating humans into places where their ideas already were, their exactly. forms already were. And, and what I love about that quilt in particular is you see your eye can go from Ringgold's representation of paintings to her representation of people beneath them and look up and down and up and down and go, Oh, I get it. It's yeah. she, she, she's again, unifying a whole, a number of these French collection, maybe all of these French collection quilts have words pretty much all the way around the borders.
1: Why? It's storytelling. Um, so two
0: ways of storytelling.
1: Yeah. Two ways of storytelling, the the graphic, the visual, and also the narrative around it. I mean, she's, These story quilts are letters back home from the main character in the French collection. So it's a way to narrate what you're actually seeing, but also to, you know, continue this story of this main character as she is navigating and moving through these different spaces and communicating her experiences to her family back at home in Harlem.
0: They are a total blast. Jamila James, thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much, Tyler. This was really fun.
0: Opening February 15th, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Maria Magdalena Campos Pons' Behold, a monographic exhibition of a visionary voice in photography, immersive installation, painting, and performance. The exhibition spans nearly four decades of the artist's work, transporting viewers across geographies, mediums, and spiritual practices. It's the first multimedia survey of Campos Pons' work since 2007. Maria Magdalena Campos pons Behold, is organized by the Brooklyn Museum and the J. Paul Getty Museum. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Kehinde Wiley, An Archaeology of Silence. This new body of work from Kehinde Wiley, one of the world's most celebrated contemporary artists, is on view in Houston for the first time. Through his large-scale paintings and sculptures, he confronts the silence surrounding systemic violence against Black and brown people. He uses the visual language of the fallen figure with reference to Western European historical art and iconic portrayals of heroes, martyrs, and saints. In the artist's words, quote, the new portraits depict young black men and women in position of vulnerability that tell a story of survival and resilience, revealing the beauty that can emerge from the horrific. This exhibition is on view through May 27, 2024 at the MFAH. Visit mfah.org slash Wiley to learn more. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Chrissa and New York through March 10, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York, and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co organized by the Manil Collection and DIA Art Foundation, CRRSA and New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at Manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Welcome back. Next up, a re air of my 2022 conversation with author Brent Martin. Just a few weeks ago, scholar Angeline Whitmire launched the George Massa Photo Database. Go check it out at georgemassaphotodatabase.com, an important new website that makes images of Massa's pictures available via a single point of access for the first time. Amazing. Massa was an Asheville, North Carolina-based photographer who had a significant impact on the establishment of Great Smoky Mountains National Park and on determining the southern route of the Appalachian Trail. Those two projects are the crown jewels of the eastern United States' natural infrastructure. For reasons I've never quite understood, we understand Carlton Watkins' importance to the invention of the National Park at Yosemite in the 1860s, Thomas Moran's importance to the preservation of what is now Yellowstone and Grand Canyon National Parks, and the field of photographic history and American history has substantially missed Massa. That's probably partly due to the region in which he worked, and its remoteness, but it's also due to his status as a Japanese-American immigrant at a time of intense anti-Japanese bigotry. Brent Martin came onto the program in 2022 to discuss his superb book, George Massa's Wild Vision, which was published by Hub City Press. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about $25. I can't recommend it enough. Brent Martin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: George Massa was as important, or at least nearly as important, to the creation of America's most popular national park, as Carlton Watkins was to the creation of the first one at Yosemite, or as Thomas Moran was to the second one 10 years later at Yellowstone. Massa was important in a different way to be sure, as the 1920s and 30s were not the 1860s, but I think pretty much just as important. So who was he, and how did he come to live in the western North Carolina mountains, or at least as much as we know why he came to Asheville?
2: Yeah, those are questions that are difficult to answer because there is so little known about George Massa's life before arriving in Nashville in 1915. The earliest record found on George Massa is from 1907, an ad placed in the San Francisco Call, which we can only assume that is George Massa. He did tell friends in Asheville that he came into the country in 1905, 1906. He gave different dates, different times, but you know, it's fairly safe to assume that that was Massa, you know, placing this ad in the San Francisco call. And there's just this big gap. He comes to Asheville in 1915 with some Austrian friends that he'd met in California, we're assuming, but that was just sort of anecdotal from Massa he Got a job at the Grove Park Inn. He had traveled to Asheville via St. Louis in New Orleans. Was he looking for work there potentially? Or was he looking for a new place to land? Regardless, he ends up in Asheville in 1915 working for the Grove Park Inn, which listeners probably aren't too familiar with that place unless they've spent some time in Asheville. It's just a big historic inn. And when Massa arrived, it was a highly popular place for tourists. And he worked as a bellhop. a couple of years his interest in photography people knew him he was interested in photography during that period he was snapping photographs he left asheville in 1917 and and traveled out west different places colorado dabbling in what he thought might be a career in engineering or photography returned to the grove park in in 1917 he was a copious journalist as far as personal journals and note-taking and Fred Loring Seeley who was the manager of the Grove Park and actually reported Massa as a spy to the FBI as a potential spy. There were anti-immigration, Asian anti-immigration acts have been passed starting in 1905 in California. So World War I, who knows what Massa was facing personally with those types of acts being passed, but there's a gap. We don't really know what happened what he did between 1907 when that ad was placed to 1915. Prior to that, we don't know what he did any, nothing really, relatively nothing about his life. He wrote conflicting birth records. He was born Masahara Izuka and and changed his name to George Masa upon arrival. He gave 1881 as a birth date, 1885 as a birth date, 1890. He uh, most commonly gave it as 1881. When he died in 1933, most of his friends in the Carolina Mountain Club said he was probably around 50 years old. So he is a mystery. (laughs)
0: <laughs> do we know how he became interested in
2: photography no people who were close to massa they suspected that massa had had training and had had some formal exposure to photography but there's nothing established about his past with that endeavor and you know I speculate in the book that massa would have been around photography as it was developing in in Japan in the late. 19th and early 20th centuries photography was becoming somewhat of a phenomenon in Japan at the time so perhaps massa had some training in Japan and that was something that he had just brought along with him to this to this country and really kind of saw it as a path for himself and as a way forward he was ambitious and when he does take photography on he takes it on seriously and in a very professional way and his you know departure from the grove park inn really was to become a commercial photographer and when you think about that departure in about 1919 in that era when he worked with the creaseman family in Asheville and started plateau studios and you know it was a pretty meteoritic success story uh, over a decade of his life which would, would have put him somewhere close to 40 at that point. And to think that in that brief window of time, he became the photographer for the Asheville Chamber of Commerce, Mount Mitchell State Park. He hired him as a promoter. The town of Highlands here in Macon County, where I live, hired myself as a as a promotional photographer. He worked for the New York Times.
0: Photographing uh, John D. Rockefeller, no less.
2: Photographing <laughs> John D. Rockefeller, sending his images off to Calvin Coolidge and wanting Coolidge to, to use his, using his images as a way to try and convince Coolidge that Smokies needed national park status. He became somewhat ubiquitous in this landscape with photography. So it's, it's an amazing story in the sense that, if he hadn't had photography back a background in photography and had been trained in photography and to think that he was in a country that where he was not a citizen or had not grown up or been familiar with the culture, of his life, his entire life. It's a, it's a pretty amazing art statement <laughs> can, can morph into what they choose to morph into with the right amount of discipline and vision.
0: So as Massa starts photographing the Southern Appalachians writ large, I guess today we know him best for the Smokies, but he was involved in the extension and development of the Appalachian Trail. He was involved in what became Mount Mitchell State Park. I mean, basically, if there were mountains and trees in the Southern Appalachians, he had a lens in it. What were the challenges of photographing the region in the 1920s? and thirties keeping in mind that, you know, he's doing it with an eight by 10 camera and, you know, roads aren't paved. I mean, what, what would that have been like? And what does that tell us about how kind of intent he was about all of it?
2: Well, it was a fairly remote landscape. It was a landscape that was an incredible transition. The national forest system here in the East had only been established in 1911. One of the biggest purchases in this landscape was from the Vanderbilt family in 1916, which added about 100,000 acres to the national forest system. But the rest of the landscape and significant amount of the landscape was being heavily logged. Railroads were being punched in to log. Uh, The Smokies were being logged. The Park Service, of course, was at that point, there was no national park movement within the Park Service. So that landscape was very much under siege. There were tracks that were being protected by the forest service while massa was here and he would have been roaming that that landscape when he was in search of a route for the appalachian trail but that would have been a, a very rough landscape to traverse and you know, this is another subject altogether but <laughs> this landscape is loaded of course with ancient trails that have been on on it for millennia by native people so a lot of the Appalachian Trail, for example, follows what world ridgeline trails that had been in place for a long time. But he would have been crawling through a lot of rhododendron and doing a lot of really crazy bushwhacks, probably through landscapes that had been heavily cut over. The Mount Mitchell landscape, for example, that he photographed in the early 20s was just a race against time. It was, you know, it was interesting to look at Massa images of the Mount Mitchell landscape. And he included those photographs that were of hideous landscapes that had been clear-cut by Pearlie and Crockett, while at the same time contrasting those with these majestic, you know, magical capturing of light you know, in the blacks during just, you know, perfect patience, I'm sure, to get those shots. You know, so it was a landscape really in transition. One of the photographs that really struck me about Mass's time here in the county where I live, and he was here more than just, you know, for this particular project, but when the town of Highlands hired him to promote, you know, to create a promotional brochure for that town, he was here when the Colesagia Gorge, which is just one of the most drop-dead, awe-inspiring gorges anywhere around here in these mountains, there was no road in it at the time when he was here in 1929 he photographed that road being blasted out of the mountain right you know where the gorge is and I just thought that was interesting it would have you know i have just puzzled over what he thought about what would have been incredible devastation contrasted with incredible beauty and you know one of the things that really struck me working on this project was visiting so many of these places 100 years later after Massa's work and many, many others work to protect these places like the Smokies and Mount Mitchell and Highlands and the Appalachian Trail Corridor, on and on. You know, these promotional pieces were extremely successful. And, you know, it was hard not to say to a fault at times because so much of the landscape has been run over and devoured. Massa saw an incredible transition going on i'm sure and right now there's another transition going on so i don't know it's it was just interesting to puzzle over this landscape a hundred years later after massa was here and thinking about what he had saw had seen while working these mountains and you know what would he think about this landscape 100 years later a landscape that he had worked in so many ways to be part of protecting
0: one of the things about looking at Mass's pictures in Southern Appalachian archives, we'll talk a little bit about more about that in a moment, and in your book, is how much they reminded me of photographs that the WPA photographers took a little bit further north in Virginia uh, of similar clear-cutting in, in the region that became Shenandoah National Park, and how the light is, is, is somewhat similar in that, you know, the light was just bouncing off of cleared land, and how he found and helped preserve beauty and nature here that the WPA photographers further north were were really a little bit too late to capture. You quote in the book, and I love this part, <laughs> you quote Angela Adams as saying how, quote, devilish hard it was to photograph the Appalachians. And I'm sure it is, right? I mean, the air here is is more humid than the air out west, which impacts how you see And what you can show, the mountains in in the Southern Appalachians are enormously more tightly folded and dense than Adams's beloved Sierra. But of course, what Adams is referring to is that the mountains in the Southern Appalachians are enormously more eroded than the Sierra mountains are. And so, of course, there's less differentiation between them. So what were some of the ways Massa found of communicating the scale and the beauty of the place in his pictures? Because I think
2: he succeeded and enormously. I think Massa had a gift for capturing light in this landscape. I mean, there were other good photographers around during that period as well, but I think Massa probably captured light better than anyone else. And I think he captured shadow and like mm-hmm. in ways that were extremely compelling visually, you know, I can totally get how Ansel Adams would just look at these mountains and go away. Oh, <laughs> you know, you know, I forget how many days that that Ansel Adams was here in the Smokies. And you know, he got four photographs out of that project. And you know, yeah, I laughed at that. <laughs> yeah, right. right? I doubt if you would ever even heard of Georgia Massa, and that that just kind of. That, that's a little bit painful thinking that someone like Massa had immersed himself in this landscape in such a, a intense way. I mean, like a total immersion. And I think psychologically, artistically, Massa was wed to this landscape in a profound kind of way. And, of course, Ansel Adams didn't take the time to do that. <laughs> and, uh, no,
0: and, of course, Adams at times in his life denied... Giving two beans about the work of Carlton Watkins and and, Adams included Watkins in shows. So I I think it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, Adams once said that George Fisk was his favorite photographer of Yosemite, which is as preposterous as preposterous can be. So Adams wasn't beyond bending his memory when it served his own purposes. Mm I think one of the things that Massa does in in, in his pictures of the Southern Appalachians is that I think he's looked, and I have no way of proving this. This is all just visual observation, you know, taken from the pictures themselves. But he's composing images in the same way pictorialist photographers in the Northeast and in California are. And to me, that of those compositions and application of them to the Southern Appalachian landscape pretty strongly indicates to me that he knew what was going on Mm -hmm. in art and photography of 1910s, 20s, and early 30s America, and that he was engaging with it. He didn't have a San Francisco gallery or a New York dealer, but he seems to be mindfully playing on the same field.
2: I agree. Something worth giving a lot of attention to. Being in California, maybe he saw Watkins photographs, galleries. Who knows? We just don't know where his artistic drive was birthed from or Ann
0: Brigman um, a little bit later, you know, closer to when he was there.
2: Right, perhaps those questions can be answered by the biographical work that's being, hopefully going to come out in the next two to three years by Paul Bonstill, who did do a documentary on Massa in 2003, The Mystery of George Massa, and of course, Ken Burns brought him up as well. But Paul and Janet now have received some funding to hire Japanese researchers to try and see if they can unravel Massa's life from, you know, for the first 25 years of his life. Uh, mm. and then on, because there's just really not anything known between 1906 and 1907 and 1915 about what he was doing in this country either with their funding and with their contract with the Great Smoky Mountains Association, may, maybe some, some new light on just who George Massa was and what his influences were will you know will become more available and apparent to us all with that work i hope so i hope that they just aren't hitting dead ends everywhere and you know we're just left to live with this great mysterious character mm. these mountains that just for me anyway grows more mysterious all the time you know I've known Paul and Janet both for a long time and I'm, I'm really jealous of them because I didn't want to stop writing this book I wanted to, uh, <laughs> um, to, to be part of you know and of course I've offered myself up to Paul and Janet mm-hmm. for um, whatever efforts I can be of assistance with
0: it's it's absolutely wild to me that Massa isn't better known I mean so far as I know so far as accessible through outside databases anyway. His work isn't in major institutional collections, such as those at MoMA or the Met or or the Getty or SF MoMA. And so that's certainly one reason. I mean, you can find Mass's work in archival collections in Western North Carolina, but not in the, the big urban collections. One of the things I think your book does a really good job of is pointing to some other reasons having to do with discrimination and bigotry of the 20s, 30s, and afterward about why Massa isn't better known? What are are some of those reasons?
2: Well, he died in poverty and had lost pretty much everything during the depression. He dies in 1933, yeah, Yeah, 1933. Uh, His best friend, Horace Keppert had died in 1931, which was an incredible, enormous personal loss for him. He said that he quite never got over that and considered Keppert, you know, just this in a huge tragic moment in his life was to lose that man so following his death, his negatives were all lost well they the, his negatives were purchased by Lyman Fisher in Asheville for like fifty dollars, which the Carolina Mountain Club handled his estate and you know enough sold enough of, of what they had of his to to cover burial expenses and then the negatives were lost. people began ripping off his images and is photographs that people had suddenly were becoming used in the postcard industry, and Fisher used them in the postcard industry. The year that Massa died, the first guidebook to the Smokies had been written by Massa and Nashville Citizen Times reporter George McCoy, and Massa was credited in that first edition of that Smokies guidebook. And then the second edition, which came out like a year after Massa died, there was no mention of Massa. You know, wow. And Massa had spent so much, I mean, he more about, massively more about park nomenclature and place and geographical descriptions than anyone. Arno Kammerer, the park serviceman, called him the best mountaineer on the western side of the Smokies in North Carolina. He served on the nomenclature committee, even though he was never made an official member of the nomenclature committee, for reasons we don't know. He was on the nomenclature committee to establish place names for the Smokies, I guess ad hoc, Uh, Keppert was an official member, but, you know, Massa drew these incredibly complex and accurate schematics of watersheds in the Smokies. And, you know, he knew the park really like no one. And then everyone begins ripping off his work. His negatives, like I said, were lost. It took Carolina Mountain Club quite some time to actually raise the money for a headstone. Several years before they even put a headstone on Massa's grave. His images just were scattered to the winds and they have been collected over the years and placed in, in various institutions. But, you know, that was just a real tragedy. There was no archival response to his death. You know, and one can only speculate about, about the times, you know, the Grove Park Inn several years later would serve as a internment camp for Japanese diplomats. I'm sure Massa encountered racism in these mountains. It's just it's hard to believe he wouldn't. So I think that, yeah there's there's a there's an underlying piece to this that that i think that question gets at about his life and you know who he was who he was as an individual as much as who he was as an artist and a photographer that for me is one of the big mysteries it's just as an individual what got that guy out of bed every day and put him out in a landscape where he most likely was completely underappreciated by many. This is, I guess, sort of tangentially related to the question, but uh, Horace Keppert had been bequeathed a m- mountain in the Smokies uh, by the Nomenclature Committee, and there was Mount Keppert still there. And uh, before he even died, Keppert had a mountain in the park, proposed park, on its way to being a park, named for him. And- At At runs there, over. Keppert, Yes, exactly. Right, right, right there at it. And, uh, you know, and Massa had nothing and the Park Service resisted it for decades, naming anything after Massa, considered him, you know, not, you know, just as like one of the letters I read from the Park Service, I can't remember which superintendent it was, just basically said, well, you know, there are a lot of people like George Massa on that side of the park working on Smokies, you know, designation and, you uh, the Carolina Mountain Club pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. To their credit, in 1961, a peak was named for Massa in the, in the Smokies. And you know, but just that resistance to recognizing this Japanese American for being such an instrumental piece of how that park was protected it says a lot about how his photography was lost, I think, and underappreciated.
0: Yeah, Massa Knob is a little bit off the AT, and in the book you write about bushwhacking your way up it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Why a day. you know, one of the one of the images in the book is one that Massa took from the 20s at Newfound Gap, where the Appalachian Trail crosses Highway 440, what is now Highway 441, and Massa and Horace Keppert had traversed the Smoky, had gone around the Smokies to the town of Gatlinburg, which is on the northern side of the park now, just to, at the time, not much of anything, and now it's just this monstrosity of a, you know, lack of a better word just a really tacky place for tourists that the park largely is the you know, is the result of the park being established but he and kepper came up through that side of the park and drove up to this spot where the unaka mountain range you know, basically bisects the smokies and that's the tennessee north carolina state line and it was just a single lane bad gravel road and they get up to newfound gap and there's just like a pull off there and there's a photograph in the book of mass looking down on what is likely horse keppert looking off to the east in the smokies very rugged most rugged part of the smokies and where all the most of the the large majority of the remaining old growth forest is in the smokies and uh, he and Keppert try to get on down to cherokee north carolina where the cherokee quality boundary eastern band of cherokee indians are and they get stuck not long after crossing that gap and end up you know, walking to a champion fiber lumber company. And during the pandemic, that place, that very place that Massa photographed uh, was arguably one of the busiest national park parking lots in the country. So it's a blessing and a curse. I don't know. <laughs>
0: the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is about equally in eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina. Massa Nob, I take a certain delight in uh, knowing, is by, you know, the, the, the summit of Massa Nob is by a few dozen yards on the North Carolina side of
2: the park. Fred <laughs> Martin, thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much, Tyler. It was great to talk to you and, and spread the word about this wonderful human being.